0: Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute. Today we're going to be uh, talking a little bit about the the proposed uh, deficit commission that's been floating around uh, both sides of the Capitol of late. We have a really fantastic panel and uh, probably not as much time as we'd like. So uh, in the interest of brevity, I'm going to go straight to introducing our first speaker today. Uh, We're very pleased to have Congressman Paul Ryan joining us. He is a probably someone who, who needs very little introduction, especially for an audience like this. He represents the 1st Congressional District in Wisconsin. He's also the ranking member on the House Budget Committee. Uh, also serves in a senior role on the uh, the House Ways and Means Committee. So a perfect person, I think, to address this issue. Without any further ado, I'll turn things over to Congressman Ryan.
1: Well, you can hear the bell, so I'll... I'll that's the vote, so I will give uh, brief remarks and a couple questions, then I'll unfortunately have to go vote. Um, I think if you take a look at the title commission, we have the uh, Conrad Gregg in the Senate, and we've got Frank Wolf and Cooper over here in the House, uh, slightly different versions. Uh, I want to simply say this. I, I am very excited that the issue of entitlement reform is coming more front and center. I'm very excited that other members of Congress are paying attention to the fiscal crisis in this country. And, and that deserves attention, and that deserves accolades. Um, and I think if you take a look at the different uh, components of the commissions, uh, the wolf probably has a little more of a grassroots appeal to it simply because it requires that the commissioners go out and listen to the American people and have town hall meetings. I think those things are good things. Um, having said all of that, I think there are some legitimate criticisms about commissions. For number one, I, would, I for one would like to see Congress just do its job and fix this problem pass legislation to do it. Number two, um, I think one can make uh, a legitimate claim that outsourcing Congress's work to a commission, even if it's composed of all members of Congress um, uh, outside of the legislative process, um, can often give you predetermined conclusions based upon the composition of the commission, based upon the way the rules of the commission work. And my concern during entitlement reform is that the outcome of such an endeavor could simply lead to a much higher tax revenue line, uh, higher expenditures, and we will have missed the opportunity to truly reform these, these entitlement programs uh, with the eye on liberty, freedom, free enterprise, self-determination, the principles that founded and created this country. Uh, what do I mean when I say that? Um, I would actually go at one premise of the Commission idea, um, which I think is a faulty premise, and that is that it is really unpopular to do entitlement reform. It can never be done under normal, regular order. No politician would dare touch entitlement reform because it is the proverbial third rail in politics. You touch it, you die. Well, I would just simply say that I feel like I'm living evidence of of the contrary. Um, I wrote a very detailed bill uh, two years ago. I'm reintroducing a new version of it in January. I call it the Roadmap for America's Future. It does fundamental, very detailed entitlement reform, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, health care reform, and tax reform using real numbers, real estimates from the actuaries, um, and real legislation. Uh, I'm a koala bear on the third rail. And I just want to simply say that coming from a congressional district that voted for Michael Dukakis and Bill Clinton twice and Al Gore and Barack Obama, um, this is not political death. I think the American people are ready for real talk. They are ready for people to talk to them like adults, not like children. The American people know we have a huge deficit and debt crisis ahead of us. Ask any young person in my X generation or the Y generation on down, and they know They know the promises being made to them in the future are unsustainable. The American people know we are on a trajectory and a road that is totally unsustainable. And we know for a fact, an irrefutable mathematical fact, that right now, forget about cap and trade and the new health care entitlement that's being muscled through right now, we know for a fact that we are consigning the next generation to an inferior standard of living. Per capita GDP, CBO will tell you this, GAO will tell you this, Cato will tell you this, we are giving our kids and our grandkids an inferior standard of living. We know that they cannot sustain the kind of quality of life that we've had. And so what I would simply say, the American people, sensing and knowing and seeing the details become ever more clear and present, they know that the greatness of this country, the prosperity and freedom of this country is tenuous. It has to be reclaimed and fought for and achieved every generation. We know the legacy of this country, where you leave the next generation better off, is for the first real time uh, being severed unless we act. And so that is why I think politically, and that's, that means I've got 10 more minutes, that means, in my opinion, that the American people are ready for real ideas, real reform, real members of Congress and real candidates for Congress to go to the American people with specifics and plans and actually enact them. And so, yes, if you think that entitlement reform is a bad idea or is something that the American people don't want and you have to find some way of getting it into law, then a commission is the right way to go. Now it is not the worst of all ideas. The worst of all ideas is to do nothing and ignore the problem. So at least with a commission, you're on the field. Um, In some ways, you could say it's a punt. I would rather throw a pass in the end zone and actually uh, get this done. And I just want to close with saying, and I know uh, there are others who have stronger opinions about the commissions. The people who are pushing these commission bills, their heart is in the right place. Their minds are in the right place. They know we have an unsustainable legacy we are passing on to the next generation so they ought to be applauded for proposing these things. I simply put a plan out, not saying that I had all of the ideas and figured it out. I wanted to put a plan out that was real and specific to encourage other people to do the same so that we could have a real debate on ideas and how to fix this problem, not if to fix this problem. And with the commission, I fear that you might stifle that kind of a debate so that the best idea wins at the end of the day. And with that, I'd be happy to take your questions before I have to go vote. So thank you very much. uh, talked in your piece about reaching a tipping point in just a couple years. Uh, Can you talk about the demographic tipping point that we're likely to hit where
2: finally the Gen X and Gen Y voters that are stuck with the tab are going to outnumber uh, those who've uh, stuck them with that tab and and really where the the electoral mathematics are going to mean this will happen
1: and you're doing the responsible thing and talking about it now. How many years until that took? That's a good question. I'm actually running numbers right now on that to give you a very specific answer. Uh, if you look at what, what in Ways and Means in the tax world you call negative taxpayers, people who get transfer payments in excess of payroll and income taxes, I think it's 42 percent right now, Doug. You probably know this off the top of your head. I think it's 42 percent of Americans are in that category of getting more transfer payments from the government in excess of payroll and FICA taxes. And so that's a pretty big number. And obviously the trajectory is heading in the wrong direction. My big fear with this is, let's say you layer on another entitlement, like a new healthcare entitlement on top of it. My fear is we will reach a tipping point in this country after which it's going to be difficult to come back because more Americans will be depending on the government for their material security and well-being than upon themselves. And that means you will have Americans more concerned about their dependencies, more complacent than they are about their liberties and their freedoms. That is a system in which you will have fully replaced the American idea with more of a European vision of a welfare state. And the European vision is one in which the rights come from the government, not from nature, not from God, which is what we believe, what our founders believe, which is why we had the American Revolution in the first place. And so, to me, there's a lot of philosophy and ideology underneath this, and there are those who believe more in a collectivist European model, and and the numbers play to that side. And so, yeah, I think it's a number of years I would count on, you know, my hands. Don't know exactly when that's going to be. Circumstances dictate that. But it's also the boomers. Um, we're, going, we're going to basically have a 100% increase in the retirement population and a, I think a 17% increase in the tax-paying population. And so the question is, um, if you pass these things now, the reforms don't apply to people over the age of 55. You're not going to have to disrupt people in their lives who, are, who have already organized their lives around, you know, retirement. Um, people who are in and near retirement. And so people under 55 have time to change. And I would argue you're making these ideas better because they're individually owned and controlled. That's better for the individual for prosperity and freedom in this country. But if you wait so long, then the reforms that would be necessary will disrupt the lives of people who have already retired. And that will be very, very difficult to do, especially when you're doing this with a voting block of 80 million retirees, than a voting block of forty million retirees. So politics, demographics, philosophy, ideology, all play into it. I won't give as long an answer. I promise. Yeah. Yes, it's separate, separate from the budget resolution. As as the ranking member of the budget committee, I write a budget resolution, which is a consensus of the Republican conference, which is separate from my own project, which is <coughs> my, my roadmap bill. All right. Thank you very much. Have a good day, everybody. <laughs> yeah, I with me, yeah absolutely. thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for it.
0: Thank you very much, Congressman. Uh, next up, we have Douglas Holtz-Eakin. Uh, many of you know him from his roles as a senior policy advisor to uh, to John McCain when, when McCain was running for president. He also uh, previously served as a director of the Congressional Budget Office, which apparently I think is the the most powerful man in in all of D.C. It seems these days. <laughs> Um, he uh, prior to that he served as the <laughs> uh, he's prior to that he served as the uh, chief economist at the president's council of economic advisors and uh, he also served under uh, President George H W Bush as a senior economist on the council of economic advisors. With that uh, Douglas
3: holtz not nearly as tall as Paul Ryan. Um, Thank you. Uh, This is uh, obviously an enormous challenge that we face, and uh, so we're all in the same terms. I want to characterize how I see the fiscal challenge in the United States. Uh, If you take, for example, the CBO's pricing of the Obama administration budget, you take it at face value uh, and run it out 10 years to 2019, uh, in 2019, we have a deficit that is above 5.5% of GDP. Uh, It's a trillion dollars. This is after the economy is assumed to return to full employment. It is after the financial crisis is presumably a memory. Uh, And it is after revenues have achieved 19% of GDP above their historical average. Uh, And of that trillion-dollar deficit, roughly $800 billion is used to pay interest on previous borrowing. And so we are perilously close to the point where we are borrowing simply to pay the interest on previous borrowing. Uh, It's a trajectory that I consider to be fundamentally dangerous uh, to this country and to its economic foundations. Um, unfortunately, I believe it's also an optimistic assessment of the outlook um, because it assumes that all the provisions that were in the stimulus bill sunset after two years, uh, something which is at odds with conventional political practice in the United States. I don't think conventional political practice would be to let a make-work-pay tax credit sunset, American Opportunity Tax Credit sunset, higher Pell Grants go down, Uh, We all know that that the pressures go the other way, and so we're likely to have, if you extend everything in the stimulus, another $1.7 trillion or so of spending. Uh, It's also the case that uh, that budgetary outlook does not include the current health care bills in both the House and the Senate, uh, bills that I'm not going to waste a lot of time on. I'm on record as saying that I'm opposed to these. Uh, They are fundamentally dangerous to the budgetary outlook. They set up large new entitlement spending programs. that grow at 8 percent a year, as far as the eye can see and pay for them by not fixing but simply on paper taking money out of existing broken entitlement programs. They grow at 8% typically as far as the eye can see. I don't think they add up. I think they're, they're uh, an enormously dangerous place for this country to go, particularly given uh, its underlying problems. Uh, and they would in the, in the process take off the table exactly the place we need to go to fix our budgetary outlook. So it would be very difficult to go back and do Medicare reforms, Medicaid reforms, uh, when we will have just passed legislation that fundamentally alters both Medicare and Medicaid. uh, And so we will have both tied our hands politically and built in uh, a budgetary dynamic that is even worse than the baseline outlook. All of that, I think, places us at great risk. Uh, We have known for a long time we had this problem. That the entitlement programs uh, outstripped our capacity to uh, pay for them in any meaningful economic sense, Uh, but we have now taken this decadal-long problem that used to go from now to to 2020, 2025, and compressed it into a much shorter time period, where over the next 10 years we must come to grip with uh, the trajectory on which we have placed the United States, and the question is, what happens if we don't, and what are our options uh, for dealing with this? Well. if, if we do nothing, uh, I'd say we, do, we run the risk of uh, conventional problems, which are absence of uh, private investment in productive capacity, failure of growth in standards of living in the United States, uh, a, a real inability to compete around the world, and uh, uh, crowding out of our net exports uh, in the more extreme cases. Uh, we suffer currency crises, uh, inflation and interest rate spikes, and devastating recessions. And I'd say over time, as we borrow internationally, we cede an enormous amount of our economic freedom and run the risk of having our economic policies dictated by bankers in Beijing and other places. And so uh, there are a series of uh, concomitant costs that come along with this trajectory. Uh, that, to me, says it's, it's an imperative that we take care of this and we take care of it quickly. Uh, I'll note, uh, to follow up on something Congressman Ryan said, that you know, the baby boom is at the heart of this. And so you really do have to move quickly. Speed matters here, not just because we have to fix this before, before international financial markets force us to, but because I'm almost 52 years old. I'm the trailing edge of the baby boom generation. And if you allow me to get to 55 and grandfather me, you've grandfathered the problem. So the bumper sticker ought to be get Doug Holt taken." I mean, you really need to, to move quickly to, to deal with the entitlement problem in the United States. So what are the solutions? Well. I'm um, w- A member of uh, the, the Pew-Peterson Budget Reform Commission, which released a report yesterday, um, and that report argues that we ought to move immediately to stabilize uh, the debt-to-GDP ratio at 60 percent of GDP instead of letting it go to something like 82, 85 percent of GDP ten years from now. We ought to undertake immediate policy actions which would stabilize debt-to-GDP, send a signal to world capital markets that we will get our fiscal house in order, <coughs> and thereafter bring the debt-to-GDP ratio down so as to fulfill our promise, which has always been the American promise to leave the next generation in a better position and a better economy than the one we inherited. Uh, To do that, uh, the Commission sort of uh, did the magic. We don't know how you get the policies to do this, but but a, a good democracy will find them. But past that... Um, you put in place budget enforcement mechanisms so that should you deviate from the, the agreed upon trajectory down to 60 and below, uh, you get automatic enforcement on both the tax and spending side in order to build the political will to stay on that kind of a, tra- of a trajectory. From my perspective, the most important thing about that is to have a fiscal goal. The goal, 60 percent of debt to GDP, 60 percent doesn't come from anywhere, could be another number. There's no magic there. But having a goal gives you a way to say no. In America, for a long time, the way we said no is we believed in balanced budgets. That gave, uh, in a political environment, a way to say no, we can't do that. You can't do everything. Uh, We've lost that particular metric. We need to reinstill into the body politic a way to say no, because not every good idea is one that merits the taxpayer's money. And so establishing the goal, I think, is the most important thing. Picking a goal like debt to GDP, I like because it it rewards pro-growth policies. If you've got the denominator growing, you minimize the burden on the economy, and and you should have metrics that make sense uh, from that perspective. The last step is to sort of figure out how commissions fit into this. And um, I have always felt that this is the Congress's job, and the Congress ought to simply do it. Um, And it's simply the fact that during my 51 years they haven't that has led me to despair to some extent. But I think that the commission uh, is worth thinking a little bit about. And uh, from my perspective, there there are several important ways to think about something like the Conrad Gregg Commission. Uh, Number one, I think of it as expedited legislative procedures um, to to do the Congress's work. And so um, the commission is composed of members of Congress, and the rules by which those members operate are different than regular order. And so they they allow for legislation to be drafted by this group and then be considered uh, straight up or down on the floor of the House and the Senate. That's, uh, in my view, essentially the Congress taking care of its business and doing it in an expedited fashion. Conrad Gregg would have members of the administration as parts of the commission. I personally wouldn't favor that. That's not my first choice. I think you should just leave this to Congress, let them find a way to do business in an effective fashion. Second big issue to worry about is the scope of such a commission. Uh, giving it uh, all of the the levers, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, the entire tax code, Uh, you have to question whether that increases or decreases the probability that they are successful in dealing with the problem. Uh, Broader scopes make it more likely that when the legislation comes to the floor, uh, it contains undesirable provisions, fails as a matter of uh, the voting. Uh, Picking the right scope of its mandate to maximize the likelihood of success Um, I think would be a sensible thing, I personally would have proposed commissions that that separated tax and spending for sure. Um, But but that's a a call that I can understand people can make the other way. Um, Third thing that always comes up with uh, a commission is the issue of will it just raise your taxes. Congressman uh, Ryan was concerned about that. It's a fair concern. Um, But I think for anyone who is uh, concerned about the future of the level of taxation in the United States, you have to ask compared to what? Uh, Would the Commission be worse than doing nothing, ending up in a financial crisis, where, I promise you, the only quick way to close the budget and calm international lenders will be to raise taxes taxes and and use the existing tax system to do so? Very undesirable in my view. Uh, Or is the the alternative something that's done in the regular order in the United States and deals with this uh, problem? I, I don't know, but in thinking about it, I think it's important to compare not just what a Commission might do, but what is our future outside of such, a, such an approach. And the last thing I'll point out about a commission is that I'm deeply concerned about the message we're sending to international financial markets and the power we're ceding to international financial markets in the way we conduct our business. But if we say to them, you know, you have good reason to be nervous about us, we're on a bad trajectory, we, we understand that, we got this commission, don't worry about it, we're going to fix it, and then the commission fails, it carries with it an enormous risk to backfire and, in fact, induce exactly the crisis it was meant to uh, avoid. And so uh, I think you should structure it in a way that maximizes the chance of success, because if you do not, um, you will have made the problem worse in the process, uh, not better. So uh, I would, um, again, simply say that uh, I would love to see Congress do this. Uh, I also applaud both uh, Senator Conrad and and Senator Gregg for their efforts, and over in the House, um, Cooper and, and Wolf and others, uh, they are dealing with the real problem, and it is it, we are past the point where we have decades and the luxury of time to deal with this. It's time to do something, do it now, and relieve from our, uh, our fiscal policy the kinds of risks that it's carrying for the economy as a whole. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Doug. Uh, next up, we have Dan Mitchell. Dan is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Prior to joining Cato, he was a, a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He's also worked here on the Hill as a senior economist with uh, Senator Bob Packwood, former Senator Packwood, and the Senate Finance Committee. And prior to that, he was the director of tax and budget policy at Citizens for a Sound Economy.
2: Dan? Thank you, Brandon. Uh, I think we all can agree that let's get Doug can be a unifying theme for our, our fiscal uh, challenges. Uh, but actually, I want to maybe take a slightly different perspective than Doug, because I agree, we need to have a target. My concern is, though, and this is my concern about a deficit commission or an entitlement commission, is that the target, if you decide that your target is debt as a percent of GDP or a certain deficit. It's sort of like you have lung cancer, you're coughing, and you think the solution is to guzzle cough syrup. The reason we have a deficit, the reason we have these long-term budget projections that are very unfriendly, and if Doug really wanted to scare you, he could have talked about CBO's long-term forecast to 2083, where we have national debt of somewhere between 300 and 700 percent of GDP. I mean, you can, the numbers are just astounding. but. I think the real challenge is, and the reason why we have these very bad numbers, is that government has grown enormously this decade, and government in the future, because of the entitlements uh, that both Doug and Paul were talking about, entitlements are going to drive the budget even higher. Uh, When Bill Clinton left office, federal government spending was about 18.5 percent of GDP. Now it's closer to 25% of GDP. Some of that's the bailout, so maybe it's not quite that bad. But if you look at these long-run forecasts, you look at what's happening with government spending, and according to CBO, we're going to be, on the federal government level alone, let's set aside state and local government, we're going to be somewhere between 45 and 67% of GDP for the federal government, depending on whether you go with the baseline estimate or or the alternative scenario. Now you add in... 12 to 15% for state and local governments, we're over 60% of GDP. The worst welfare states in Europe have government spending of about 55% of GDP. So we wouldn't just be getting to be as bad as France, we would be passing France by, we'd be passing Sweden by, we'd have a much bigger government. Now some people in Washington seem to think, well, if we can just figure out how to raise taxes even faster, the problem is solved. But let's go ahead and do a little trip around the world. Sweden, at least before the recession, had a budget surplus. All during, much of this decade, they had a surplus while we had a deficit. America was growing faster. America's per capita living standards were 30 to 40 percent higher than in Sweden. Now, of course, there's all sorts of different reasons why economies grow. And we certainly don't want to pick out just one variable such as the size of government spending. But if you look at the Economic Freedom of the World Index published by Fraser, the Index of Economic Freedom published by Heritage, the Global Competitiveness Report published by the World Economic Forum, you pretty much see that Sweden and the U.S. are very alike in most regards, except Sweden has a higher burden of government spending. Now, they finance all that government spending, at least prior to the recession, with taxes, whereas we have a smaller burden of government spending, and we finance more of it with borrowing. But in my mind, the key difference between Sweden and the U.S. isn't that they had a surplus and we had a deficit. They had a bigger government than we do, and I think that's what's responsible for Sweden's subpar economic performance compared to the U.S., and you would see the same thing with other welfare states. And so when somebody starts talking about, we need to worry about deficits, we need to worry about debt, I get very concerned because even though I know that if Doug was economic czar, we would probably have a very good fiscal policy, even to the liking of Dan Mitchell, but Doug's not going to be the person on this commission. Instead, the politicians who got us into the mess are going to be selecting who's on the commission. And I'm not quite as charitable in terms of looking at their motives. When I see someone like Kent Conrad, who in his last 17 years in the Senate has gotten 13 Fs and 4 Ds from the National Taxpayers Union and their rating on fiscal responsibility, I get the feeling that maybe, just maybe, his goal is to try to maneuver... Uh, the political process and do a big tax increase. And when I see a deficit reduction commission, I immediately get very concerned, and even though you all probably think I'm 30 years old, I'm actually older than that. And I was was in town when we had the 1990 budget summit. I was in town when we had the 1987 budget summit. And I was following politics when Reagan had the 1982 budget summit, where Tip O'Neill promised him $3 of spending cuts for every dollar of tax increase, and Reagan is still waiting for that part of the deal. Whenever we have a budget summit, the Democrats run circles around the Republicans. Not that that's that difficult to do for some reason. Uh, They run circles around the Republican. We get the tax increase. We get phony spending reforms. And if you look at the actual data following all these different budget summit deals, the exact type of thing that's generated by a commission, you see that... Government winds up being bigger, the tax burden winds up being higher, and even for those who care about deficits and debt, it doesn't seem to matter. Now, let me say a word about the tax side of it. I think think there's no doubt, if you look at the commission, what really we're looking at is a stalking horse for a value-added tax. If you look at the long-run fiscal forecast in America, there's no way that those who believe in big government can get what they want in the long run unless they have some new source of revenue. And I think the VAT is it. As a matter of fact, we've seen Pelosi, we've seen Reid, we've seen Conrad, we've seen a lot of these politicians talking about a value-added tax. And sometimes they talk about it in euphemistic terms. When they're talking about modernizing our tax system, when they're talking about our tax system being antiquated, when they're talking about aligning it with the rest of the world, what does that mean? It means a value-added tax. And so you have the revenue-hungry politicians who want bigger government, and then you combine them with some of the Republicans who are sort of on the big business side of things are under the solution that if you put in a VAT, it it somehow helps our trade balance, even though the trade deficit isn't a problem one, and a VAT wouldn't solve it, even if it was a problem two. Uh, But nonetheless, you could have a sufficient majority come together of some of these naive Republicans who are mistaken about the VAT, with politicians on the other side who simply want more revenue because that's the only way we can put in place a French-style welfare state. And let me go ahead and conclude with just this simple thought. If you have a French-style welfare state, whether you finance it with taxes, whether you finance it with borrowing, you're going to have French-style economic stagnation. But don't believe me. Go to the IMF, World Economic Database. Go to the World Bank statistics about gross national income per capita over the years. The CIA has numbers. The OECD has numbers. The Danish Finance Ministry even has numbers. You look at all these numbers, what growth rates have been over the last 20 to 30 years, and you see that the nations with bigger governments are growing slower – which is at odds with traditional economic theory. Traditional economic theory says if one country starts out poorer and one country starts out richer, they should converge. Instead, America's been increasing its economic lead over these other countries. Why? That doesn't make sense. Well, it does make sense when you factor in their governments are bigger, and that's draining resources from the productive sector of the economy. Whether you tax resources out of the productive sector or borrow them out of the productive sector, it is the act of moving money from the private sector to the government that results in slower economic growth. I don't want to be Sweden. I don't want to have a balanced budget or even a budget surplus if it means government's going to be 55% of GDP, because we will have that poorer society at the end of the day. And that's my concern about this Deficit Reduction Commission. It's not like I have optimism about other alternatives, uh, I, I do fear that uh, somehow we're just going to slide down this path toward greater statism and greater collectivism, but I don't want to give it a jump start. And that's what my concern A commission uh, would happen if we had this commission. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Dan. Uh, Dan touched a little bit on the benefits of having a sound tax policy, low taxes, and uh, he addresses this issue in more detail in a book that he authored with our next speaker called uh, Global Tax Revolution, available at fine uh, retailers across the the country. Um, uh, Our next speaker, uh, Chris Edwards, is the director of tax and budget studies at the Cato Institute. Uh, He was previously a senior economist at the Joint Economic Committee here in Congress, and uh, he's also been a, a, a senior consultant at PricewaterhouseCoopers and an economist with, uh, with the Tax Foundation here in D.C. With that, Chris Edwards.
4: Thanks, Brandon, and uh, thanks to, uh, to Doug and uh, to Paul Ryan for uh, coming today and sharing their thoughts. Uh, I'm gonna first uh, just sort of point out uh, two weird things I noticed about this uh, idea of, uh, of, a, uh, of a deficit reduction commission and then uh, discuss some of the other problems that I see. Uh, So on the Senate side, you have this uh, uh, task force proposed by Senators Conrad and Greg. Um, It's got 30 co-sponsors. On the Senate and on the House side, you have the Wolf, uh, Frank Wolf plan. It's got about 80 co-sponsors, and they would both set up with this uh, separate sort of task force or commission to come up with uh, deficit reduction ideas, and these would be uh, pushed through Congress on a fast-track sort of procedure. So you've got over 100 members who are in favor, apparently, of finding some serious cuts in the... uh, the budget, and, and then, and then, uh, then putting them through Congress. The weird thing, and the thing that makes me suspicious, is why don't these members get together now? There's nothing stopping them from setting up their own sort of caucus, coming out with a plan like Congressman Paul Ryan has, coming out with a detailed plan right now, and then trying to get. Uh, broader support for that, and that sort of makes me a little suspicious here. The second thing that's a little weird is that uh, on Sunday the Senate uh, was in session and they voted uh, 57 uh, 57 in favor of the of a big uh, 1.1 trillion dollar spending bill that uh, finishes uh, uh, lots of the appropriations bills for uh, for, for this year. Uh, the appropriations bills in the in the in the uh, plan passed by the Senate on Sunday uh, had an average 10 percent increase. Uh, which is remarkable. Uh, you know, we've got a $1.5 trillion deficit this year, and the Senate is passing a 10% increase in spending. Uh, it's remarkable. I looked at, uh, took a look at uh, who the senators supporting this were. Nine of them, uh, of these senators who supported the 10% tax increase, are on Senator uh, Conrad's, uh, co sponsored Senator Conrad's task force. Uh, so, you know, it, how are we uh, expected to believe that these folks are really serious about controlling the deficit when they're f- voting for 10% spending hikes uh, in the face of gigantic deficits? Let me point out a few things uh, on the tax side of the Greg sort of Conrad Commission, and then I'll go to the spending side. On the tax side, the thing is, it's not like we're going to uh, be able to go into this. Conservatives will be able to go into this and uh, get some sort of uh, a compromise, get a moderate... Kind of a tax uh, hike with um, real serious spending cuts. The the thing is, you cannot satiate uh, the appetite for modern Democrats for tax increases. If you look the last couple of years; it's absolutely remarkable. Every couple of months, there's something else: uh, increase uh, income tax rates, increase taxes on multinationals, energy taxes, health care taxes, on and on and on. It seems like you can't satiate their uh, demands. So, seems, you know, we would get this um, task force. And the plan would be potentially enacted, and then the Democrats would come back and want even more tax hikes on top of that. Uh, and the other thing that's, that you've got to think about is that the Democrats uh, are not in favor of sort of the least uh, damaging tax increases, like reducing some of the loopholes and deductions in the tax code. In the last couple of years, the Democrats have, have this weird procl- proclivity to focus on the most damaging anti-growth uh, tax hikes. They want to raise rates. They want to raise taxes on multinationals So we would go into this task force and it's not like we'd come out with kind of a uh, Broadening of the individual tax base or something like that That perhaps wouldn't be that damaging along with meaty um, spending cuts We'd get the most damaging sorts of anti-growth tax hikes from such a commission Let me uh, let me move to the spending side uh, it seems to me on the spending side that uh, we need systematic incentives uh, changed here uh, in Congress. I would support the idea of having a task force uh, uh, just looking at spending cuts that would put together a, a package of spending cuts for a fast track through Congress. That would be great. But it would not be a long-term solution. Uh, the federal, federal uh, members of Congress seem to be so addicted uh, to spending that you can't sort of cure the problem with a one-shot treatment. Uh, As soon as this task force uh, report was, say, passed or enacted by Congress, most of the members would immediately turn around, and the next session they'd start to want to reverse out all these uh, spending cuts. Consider, Consider Senator Conrad. Um, if a task force, for example, uh, focused on farm subsidies, which it probably would, uh, and had a package of farm subsidy cuts in there, Senator Conrad would probably come back the next uh, session of Congress and try to add uh, back in uh, those, uh, those, uh, that, that uh, uh, farm subsidy spending. Earlier this year, President Obama proposed a, a very modest uh, cut in farm subsidies. He wanted to limit so-called direct farm subsidy payments to uh, farmers with incomes uh, over half a, half a million dollars a year Senator Conrad fought uh, vigorously against that and helped kill that very limited cut in, uh, in farm subsidies for millionaires and that uh, that you know suggests to me that maybe there's another uh, sort of agenda here other than actual serious uh, spending cuts uh, some some folks are comparing the uh, the Conrad Gregg plan um, to brack the, the military base closing uh, commissions uh, of the early 1990s. But there is a big difference. I mean, for one thing, BRAC was just focused on spending cuts. The other is that there was broad agreement at the time that uh, the military budget was too big and we needed to close a lot of bases around the country, and the BRAC process was invented to make this um, process of spending cuts fair. But we're at a fundamentally different place now. Most members of Congress right now uh, do not believe in spending cuts. Uh, and so, you know, BRAC, BRAC sort of started off with sort of, sort of a good faith effort. Everyone agreed we needed spending cuts, and then the BRAC sort of focused on how to do it. Right now, we don't, we're not even at uh, first base with, uh, with agreement on the need for spending cuts. So what's the solution here? Uh, well, what we need, obviously, is we need another revolt at the ballot box like we had in 1994. But this time, when we have that revolt, and that revolt will eventually come, if you look at these scary long-term budget uh, projections, uh, we need. when that revolt comes and we have a new reformist Congress in place, we need to change incentives permanently to make Congress act on a regular, sustained basis in a more uh, frugal manner. And so if you look at some of the reform efforts of recent decades, they have focused on, on trying to change some of these fundamental incentives of Congress. Uh, the balanced budget amendment um, um, drive, which uh, um, uh, ran through the 1980s and 90s, um, it had a very good run. Uh, the Senate uh, uh, passed a BVA uh, constitutional amendment. Um, by a 69-31 vote back in 1982 and then in 1995 the House voted strongly in favor of a BBA uh, and it narrowly failed in the Senate Uh, the term limit drive which uh, swept the country in the early 1990s was a really impressive drive again to try to change the basic incentives of Congress Uh, 23 states uh, uh, imposed uh, term limits on their congressional delegations Uh, People in those states strongly voted in favor. I think the voting ratio was something like uh, two-thirds to one-third in favor of uh, term limits in the states where it uh, passed. Unfortunately, Supreme Court ruling uh, struck that down back in 1995. But looking ahead, it seems to me we need to think about ways like that that we can get a successful kind of grassroots effort uh, to, to help, to help um, put new sort of uh, permanent changes on the incentives of Congress. And I mean, so I've, you know, proposed various uh, ideas, which I'm sure a lot of people think are sort of crazy. I mean, one is, uh, so we don't have, we, we can't get congressional term limits, but what we can do is we can have a drive to, to create uh, uh, rotation in congressional committees. It seems to me that congressional committees are sort of the hubs of special interest spending pressures in Congress. And uh, you know, members go on certain committees these days, and they stay on them for decades, uh, year after year, and decade after decade, because they want to push certain special interest spending. You look at the, the uh, head of the Senate Agriculture Committee, Blanche Lincoln. She's from one of the most heavily subsidized uh, farming states. Uh, she's from a farming family, which she proudly uh, uh, boasts about. Um, there's obvious there's an obvious conflict of interest, it seems to me here. Uh, Senator Lincoln is simply not going to. Fairly balance the interests of taxpayers versus the interests of farmers. So the solution, it seems to me, is that you have random assignment to congressional committees um, uh, in, the, in the House and the Senate, um, as well as uh, term limits, and that would uh, disrupt the entrenched lobbying relationships on the committees. Or, you know, if you think that's too crazy, maybe we should we should set aside half the seats on all committees uh, for random assignment. Uh, again, this isn't something Congress is going to impose on themselves anytime soon, but, you know, in the long run, if you look at the size of the fiscal crisis coming, it's that type of idea, it seems to me, that we need a real grassroots effort to try to uh, to get to. And another movement that sort of has tried to change some of the basic incentives of Congress is the whole transparency movement, more transparency with federal budget data. Uh, one really good idea that uh, I'm really uh, sad the Republicans didn't push Uh, more for when they had the majority, uh, was the idea of uh, of Representative Pete Pete Holkstra for paycheck transparency to uh, mandate that uh, all employers must show both sides of the FICA tax on everyone's pay stub. Uh, Now we've got got this explosion in uh, Social Security and Medicare costs. I think it would have been extremely useful to change the incentives of voters and ultimately Congress to show this huge uh, burden more explicitly on pay stubs. Another idea that uh, it seems to me that uh, could be ripe for a uh, sort of a grassroots rebellion is the idea of putting a uh, spending cap on the overall federal budget, defense, entitlements, uh, discretionary spending, the whole the whole kit and commoodle. If you look back at the 80s, the Grand Rudman Hollings uh, law that was in place for, I don't know, five years or so, uh, that was a cap on the overall budget. The problem was, is it focused on the wrong thing? Its target variable deficits was the wrong target variable. The target variable, in my view, should be the growth in spending. So we've done that before, and uh, I think we need sort of another new, a new sort of GRH, but this time focused uh, on spending. Uh, so let me. Uh, so, in conclusion, I mean, it seems to me that uh, you know, it, it's true. Congress is not going to uh, put some of these restraints on itself right now. Uh, most members right now have zero interest in spending, as uh, shown in the uh, voting on the uh, on the uh, spending bill in uh, in the Senate on Sunday. So, before we get any of these sorts of reforms, we're going to ha- need a revolt at the ballot box. But what's important, it seems to me, is. House fiscal conservatives have to think ahead, and we, and we have to think about when that next revolt comes, we've got to be ready with real serious permanent changes that permanently change the incentive structure uh, in Congress. And with that, I'll, I'll pass back to Brandon for uh, some questions.